Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 49th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. This is our first episode of this podcast. Very Brand new stuff. podcast. It's an exciting time. I guess we should talk about how this is going to work. The plan for the pod is we're going to discuss every movie nominated for Best Picture in a given year. And we are picking the order of those years via random number generator. With a little finessing. There's a bit of finessing, to be fair. But this is in an effort to not end up with, you know, every 1920s year all in a row. Because yes. We're not looking forward to this. <laughs> hey, open mind. We're keeping open, open mind, mind. Open mind. That's the theme of this pod. But we are standing off with a banner year. Really. Yeah, this year's kind of a banger. We're doing 1976 or the 49th Academy Awards. So it's not to get confused because whenever people say the 1976 Oscars, I don't know if they mean the movies from 76 or the Oscars that aired in 1976. Right. So we are selecting the year by Academy Awards, but we'll tell you what year the films are from as well. And we're going to list them out. So you'll know what we're talking about. Don't worry. <laughs> about it's it. not going to be a secret. Don't worry. <laughs> so 1976, let's set the stage. What was going on that year? It was America's Bicentennial, which we are too young to remember, but according to our parents, huge was a deal. big deal. <laughs> People were really invested. And actually, Spoiler alert for one of the movies, it comes up. It really <laughs> People does. were talking about it in the, the movies of the day. My father, I think, still has like commemorative mugs from 1976. That's how big of a deal <laughs> the bicentennial was. This is the year Jimmy Carter gets elected. We are just a couple of years removed from Watergate. There's interesting political times happening in the 70s. It's a time of serial killers. At the height of serial killers. Yeah, the year that Son of Sam starts his spree. And it's a year of technological innovation because Apple and Microsoft both got incorporated that year. Wow. Who knows what the future will hold for those two. I mean, (laughs) we're in the future. But in the moment, who knew what the future would hold? So I think we should start this before we get into our opinions about everything with a run through of what all the movies are and sort of what they're about if people don't know them and their Oscars stats. So what were they nominated for and what did they win? So let's do it alphabetically to keep things fair. No favorites. Mm-hmm. So the first movie alphabetically is All the President's Men. It's based mm-hmm. on a true story drama about Washington Post journalists Woodward and Bernstein investigating the Watergate scandal. Hey, we're ready there. Watergate. Topical. It stars Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, directed by Alan J. Pakula. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards and it won three. Jason Robards won for Best Supporting Actor. It also won Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Art Direction. Picture number two. Bound for Glory, a biopic about folk singer Woody Guthrie. You know him from This Land is Your Land. It stars David Carradine, directed by Hal Ashby, nominated for six Academy Awards, and it won two Best Cinematography for Haskell Wexler and Best Original Score. Next up is Network, which is a satire about the commercialization of TV news. It stars Peter Finch, William Holden, Faye Dunaway, and Robert Duvall. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and won four, almost swept the acting awards, except for Jason Robards, as we mentioned. 
Uh, so it won Best Actor, Peter Finch, Best Actress, Faye Dunaway, Best Supporting Actress, Beatrice Strait, and that's a particularly famous performance because she holds the record for the shortest amount of time on screen to win an acting Academy Award. And Best Original Screenplay, Abby Chayefsky. The next picture is Rocky, a sports drama about an underdog boxer that gets a shot at the World Heavyweight Championship. Starring Sylvester Stallone and Carl Weathers, directed by John G. Avildsen. Nominated for 10 Academy Awards and won three. Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Film Editing. And then finally for our nominees, we have Taxi Driver. It's a drama about a mentally ill Vietnam War vet in New York City driving a taxi and losing his grip on reality. It stars Robert De Niro, directed by Martin Scorsese. It was nominated for four Academy Awards and won zero. And we should note Martin Scorsese was not nominated. We will be talking a lot, I think, over the course of this podcast about Martin Scorsese and his interesting relationship with the Academy Awards, but this is where it begins. We also want to take a minute to mention, as I think we'll try to, if anything particularly notable happened in film history. And there definitely is a tech innovation that we want to mention. Oh, a big deal here. We would be remiss to not talk about this. This was the year of the invention of the Steadicam. Garrett Brown is the guy who invented this thing, and it was used in three movies that year, two of our Best Picture nominees, Bound for Glory and Rocky, and also Marathon Man. So it came, came out kind of with a bang early yeah. on in its invention. But where would we be without Steadicam today? And I mean, I would recommend doing a deep dive into Garrett Brown's camera inventing career. Yeah, Steadicam is by no means the only thing that he invented. So give him some props. So those are the stats. And now what do we think about all of this? <laughs> the, the goal here is to decide if the Oscars in their infinite wisdom have done the right thing this year. So let's go through, I think, just sort of rapid fire all of the movies and say whether or not we would. I don't want to say if, if it should have won Best Picture, but let's do if we're mad about it. Like, right. are we mad that Rocky won? Would we have been mad if any of these other ones won? Rocky is the Best Picture, which we did spoil in our listing. Yes. At the time, what was the sort of consensus about Rocky? My sense from from reading multiple articles is it was a bit of a surprise at the time. There were some other pictures that folks thought might win Best Picture. So kind of mirroring the film, right? This underdog picture (laughs) gets the win. But I don't know if it was one of the worst wins in Oscars history. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be on those lists. And we'll take a look at this as we go through the podcast but it was the highest grossing movie of that year, which is really interesting. So mm-hmm. it was, you know, popular generally. And the only other film nominated for Best Picture that year that was in the top 10 was All the President's Men, which is fascinating uh, in retrospect, yeah, right? <laughs> a picture that if, if that came out now, there's no way that's making money at the box office. It's a quiet little talkie <laughs> that I cannot imagine cracking the top five. And the other three didn't make the top 10, but it was certainly a popular and populist choice mm-hmm. for that year. Yeah. So are we mad about it? No. Yeah, I'm not mad either. But we'll get to the whys later. Yes. So let's run through the our others in alphabetical order. Would we have been mad if all the president's men won? No. No for me too. Bound for glory? Yes. Yeah. Pretty furious. Network? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, no for me. And taxi driver? No. No. We got a lot of no's. So first of all, let's get out of the way. We both said we would have been mad if Bound for Glory won. 
why. So this is interesting for our first episode because this was a little unusual for us and we'll be going forward in that we watched all these movies together. And yeah. I think you and I were both a bit incredulous as we started watching <laughs> Bound for Glory. <laughs> Neither of us was super familiar with Woody Guthrie and it felt like we were watching a character assassination. <laughs> like whoever made that movie hated Woody Guthrie. Who made it were not on Woody Guthrie's side. He seems... Horrible. First of all, the beginning, especially the first half hour, 45 minutes of the movie, is just unrelated scenes from a life. It's like if somebody met Woody Guthrie and was like, tell me about your life. And he was like, well, this one time it was the Dust Bowl and a huge storm rolled into town and we had to board up all the walls. And then this other time I was pumping gas and a guy came through and said that I should be a fortune teller or whatever. And then this other time... The guy came up to me and was like, I'm crazy. And I gave him my paintbrushes. Yeah. And then another time, I just hopped a car and abandoned my family without telling them that's what I was going to (laughs) do. That's how the first 45 minutes of it goes. And then he hops a train to try to get to California. You know, he's going out there with all the other people looking for jobs during the Great Depression. And then he just seems to be a guy who there are no consequences to his actions. He doesn't really care about anything. Stuff just happens to him as he goes along. And then uh, he meets a guy in California who's passionate about socialism. And Woody just seems to be like, oh, that's a good idea. I'll do that. And then, yeah, it seems like he gets the credit for the fictional Ronnie Cox character, who's the one who cares about (laughs) labor rights. Exactly. And then, you know, I just, he's not sympathetic. He's not a sympathetic character. Right. And then the thing is, we read about Woody Guthrie after watching the movie, and it's also Mm -hmm. not accurate. Right. There are things that he does that make him seem like kind of an asshole in the movie that didn't really happen in real life. And you're like, why did you put that in there then? (laughs) You know, like... I don't know. It was rough. It's also at least 30 minutes too long, but I think that's going to be an opinion I have about a lot of films as we go through this process. Sure. <laughs> All right, but let's not spend too much time on a movie that neither of us thinks deserves to have been nominated for Best Picture, let alone one. Let's move along to the ones that we liked. Yes. I would say this is kind of a great year. Mm-hmm you know, Bound for Glory aside in terms of nominees, because all four of these other movies have retained their cultural significance, are all highly regarded as films. Maybe Rocky is slightly less than the others, but you can't argue its cultural significance. Right. And it's a memorable bunch. It really is. And a lot of these are also the er example of a certain type of movie. Like all the President's Men is the journalism movie. Yep. I mean, Rocky is one of the most iconic sports movies. It basically invented the uh, training montage, for God's sake. Right. So, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting year to, to start with Minus Bound for Glory. <laughs> but we're, we've moved on. Right now, Bound on. for Glory doesn't exist. So okay. let's, let's give our thoughts. All the President's Men, both of us would have been fine if it won Best Picture. Give me your yes. thoughts about it. So... I guess we didn't say at the top, but prior to watching the movies for this year, All the President's Men was the only one that I had seen. Mm -hmm. And I love this movie. It is quiet. It is deliberative. I was listening to another podcast, or I can't remember if I was reading something, and they described it as the ultimate procedural film, because it really is just about the process of them doing journalism. It is super process heavy. 
I don't know if people haven't seen this. It's the days of journalism when you couldn't Google anything. The only way to get any information was to just call as many people as possible and ask them and physically fly to places if you needed to talk to a guy who was in another city. And so there are long scenes of them going around talking to people. They see a guy's name and need to figure out who the guy is. And so the only way to do that is to check every name in the phone book and talk to like, it's that sort of process. It's a thing that it could not exist today because the process of journalism is so different. Right. And so it's very much of its era. But I think that's a lot of the charm of it. Yeah, it's wonderfully suspenseful in places. You get really caught up in them finding out where the money went for the Republican National Convention. And it's also, I think if you haven't seen all the president's men, you wouldn't think this. It's surprisingly funny. Yes, there are funny moments. And part of that is just that, you know, the guys are so good. You're not going to dislike anything with Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman in it, but they've got this charm and they have interesting chemistry because they're, you know, you stop thinking of them as like the real people because they've built these characters. And Mm -hmm. so they have this interesting dynamic between the two of them. And you and I always quote this line to each other where (laughs) Dustin Hoffman throws a cookie to Robert Redford as they're doing their work. And Robert Redford grabs him and then is like, I don't want a cookie. (laughs) So it just, it feels lived in. They feel like real people. And there are some funny moments, which you need because it's not a short movie and it's not fast paced. <laughs> so true. And it's interesting too, because the movie sort of ends abruptly. I, I showed yes. this movie to my younger brother, who's much younger than me a couple years ago. And he was just like that, that's the end. <laughs> but I think right thematically, it makes a ton of sense. And it's actually really important that the movie doesn't end with like, and then we caught Richard Nixon, and he got out of office and we won. It's it's because it really is just about the process. Yeah. Well, and it's about these two guys who were not star reporters at the Washington Post. They were both kind of lower level and just happened to catch on to this story that nobody else was investigating at the time and put in the work. And Ben Bradley, the editor-in-chief of the Washington Post, happened to give them the leeway they needed when no one else was investigating it. And had it not happened that way, who knows what would have happened to Nixon, right? It's just happened to be freak chance (laughs) that it worked out that way. And the way they did it is just by not giving up, right? Working as hard as they could on something that nobody else was even thinking about at the time, which is, it's funny to me now with the hindsight of where we are in politics, where we are in the world, because really, in my mind, Nixon completely destroyed the office of the presidency in the eyes of people. Like, I don't think that anyone will ever have the sort of respect that they had back in the day. But to watch the movie and they're doing this investigation and the stuff they're finding, they can't believe what they're finding. And they're thinking, no way could this go as high as the president's chief of staff or this guy over at just like the attorney general. And in your head, you're like, it was all Nixon all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So all these guys who are like, well, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a patriot and I believe in the president. And you're just like, that's so sweet. (laughs) But because it's it's so interesting to watch a historical movie knowing what's going to happen and still have it be suspenseful. That's like a right. completely unrelated, but it reminds me of 13 Days. Oh, absolutely. A movie that the two of us love about the Cuban Missile Crisis. You wouldn't believe the suspense when you know what's going to happen. They don't end the world with nuclear Armageddon in that movie. <laughs> but, but still, uh, it's well controlled. So yeah, it's beautifully shot. The mm-hmm. performances are great. It's a great script. It is 
like I mentioned earlier, like the er journalism movie. And well, you can't make a journalism movie now that's not either intentionally referencing all the president's men or intentionally trying to do the opposite of all the president's men. It just, you can't make a journalism movie that exists apart from it because it yeah. made the genre. So wouldn't yeah. be mad about it. Wouldn't be mad about it. Big fan of all the president's men. I don't know if we're going to do this later, but we should also mention that all four of these movies are on the AFI top 100 list as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. That um, is worth worth noting, certainly. Yeah. They're, they're good movies. It's a good year, 1976. So All the President's Men, yeah, that's one. I think it has a special place in our hearts because when did you first watch that movie? We must have been in high school or something. Yeah, I think in high school. I, fortunately, unfortunately, I don't know at this point, do still have in my heart a romantic notion around journalism. And so like, mm-hmm. it just... it. It hits me. Yeah. It just hits me right right in my heart. <laughs> right in the feels. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I still, like, believe in the concept of journalism because, yeah. you know, it's sort the of the only... The of the fourth estate. Exactly. The how is your country going... Like, how can democracy survive without journalists to hold politicians to account? It's just, you know, doesn't always happen that way. <laughs> no, it's like something happened which perhaps the next movie on our list comments mm. on which maybe impacted how journalism functions what a transition country. that's fantastic all right all right i'll take your hint let's yeah. move on to network this is a movie you already said you'd only seen all the president's men yeah. i had also seen rocky and taxi driver but i years ago so i definitely needed the refresher of watching it but i had not seen network which i'm ashamed to say because I'm a media person. (laughs) It's a movie that I definitely should have seen earlier than I did. But this is a movie about the it was about media in 1976. But it's truly about media today. It has lost no relevancy. Because as I think you saw a quote from someone who was like, if 40 years later, we're talking about how relevant it is. I think really, we just didn't take the lessons of the movie. When right. It came it's out. not that it was prescient. It's just that we haven't listened to what yeah, it Yeah, nobody saying. listened because it was telling us uh, something we should have been changing and we just didn't do it. But it is just biting satire about everything that has happened to our media landscape today. So give me a little bit more of a vibe of network. Yeah, so I guess if people don't know, and I don't know exactly when this happened or it was like a long transition, but at a certain point on TV, news had to start being profitable like everything else. So like another movie I love is Good Night and Good Luck. And Oh, yeah, it's a good one. In that time period, it wasn't expected that the news would make money for a network. Well, it's a public service, right? Like if we're right. talking about how journalism is crucial to society if you're abc or whatever you take a loss on your news business and then you make your money back making whatever your primetime shows are we can still see that today if you watch pbs or listen to npr Mm -hmm. it's very different true if you are interested in seeing what the profit motive has done to journalism just look at any of the cable news networks right and and you will see exactly what this movie was talking about. So what people, if they haven't seen this movie, probably the only thing they know about it, which is what we knew, is the uh, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore speech. Right. Which I think in both of our minds was the final culmination of the film. Yeah, and I really thought that was the climax. Of we the were film. very wrong. <laughs> that is towards the beginning of the film. And it's set at this time of transition in TV news where... 
the news division is still trying to keep its hold. It's set at a, at a fictional television network. Mm-hmm. So the news division, run by William Holden, love William Holden, is trying to keep hold of their journalistic standards and ethics and put on their regular nightly news. Meanwhile, a company, unknown company with unknown yeah. motives, conglomerate. Has, a conglomerate, has come in and bought the network, which, again, something everyone will be very familiar with (laughs) they know anything about how tv stations nowadays work and so they want every part of the company to be profitable and that includes tv news so you've got a guy saying to them we need more viewers on the news station you have faye dunaway who's running the scripted tv side of things who wants to be involved in news so she's of the mindset like we can get into some cross promotion if we take these real news events and then craft scripted programming around them. And that'll drive, you know, viewers from one thing to the other yeah. to the point where she's trying to basically get this terrorist organization to do new terrorist acts that they can then turn into scripted TV on the right. back end, which is, you know, a bit of an issue. Ethically questionable. Ethically questionable. But this is where the the tension between these old guard guys who see the news a certain way and then your new, more corporate mindset, you know, just because it's news doesn't mean it can't be entertainment. (laughs) You've probably heard that before. So where we come into it is that I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore speech is the main news anchor has been fired because he's not getting the ratings he used to get. And he basically loses it on the air and everybody watches. Amazing. Everybody tunes in when a guy sort of goes crazy and he he announces that he's going to kill himself live on air in like three days or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so they get all these people tuning in and his friend, William Holden, who runs the department, is concerned about him and wants to take him off the air, as you might expect. Meanwhile, the people running the company and Faye Dunaway are like, think of the ratings. Let's get this guy back out there. And so it just descends into extraordinary satire. Like, yes, I- they transform the news hour into this thing where like, one part is Peter Finch's character, who is a prophet of the airwaves. Uh-huh. And he's just there to say crazy shit and get the masses all riled yeah. up so that they'll keep watching. But the news also now has a fortune teller and like <laughs> yep. a computer that does yeah. a fortune of it. I'm never get a sense of what this part that's hosted by the computer is all about. Right. So yeah, it's just, again, the script. Patty Chayesky, what a genius. There's this subplot where William Holden, who's the representative of all things old news and supposedly memorial center of the film, but really just the older generation representative. And then Faye Dunaway, who's the representation of TV for Mm -hmm. all of its terribleness, have this affair. And so it's going on through the movie and you're kind of like, why are we doing this? You know, I'm interested in all of the news satire stuff, but why is William Holden cheating on his wife with this terrible woman that he clearly doesn't even really like? Because he, she's against everything he stands for. Like, what's going on here? I think I said aloud to you, like, I don't know why we're doing this plot. Yes. <laughs> as we were watching. And then you get to this masterpiece of a scene, which is the scene that, what's her name? Beatrice, Beatrice Strait, Strait. Yeah. Won her Academy Award for, where he goes to his wife and he tells her that he is having this affair and he's going to have to leave her. And basically he lays it all out there that he knows that it's a terrible idea, but it's like all been scripted because even he cannot resist the allure of the television and this Mm -hmm. woman. 
And so everything is playing out exactly according to the script and he knows how it's going to go, but there's nothing that he can do (laughs) to stop it. And that scene is also about how TV, you know, it's bread and circuses. They give you these feel good moments. Mm -hmm. So he's like, and in the end, I'll come back to you and, you know, I'll feel badly and we'll have this nice reconciliation because, you know, that's what people want. Exactly. It's what you want. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's this wonderful meta scene about what that lays out. Yeah. Everything that's happening in the film, which is then followed immediately by this extraordinary, basically Dr. Strangelove, how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb scene where Faye Dunaway has gotten this woman who is involved in some sort of radical left-wing terror organization to be her contact to the group that she wants to be filming their actions right. to, to work on. on news. Right. And so there's this scene where they're negotiating the contracts for the scripted show that they're all going to do. And this woman from the Communist Party is talking about how she needs to get these distribution costs on the script for the for the show. Because and she says, I quote, the Communist Party is not going to see a nickel out of this goddamn show until we go into syndication. And it's just This extraordinary moment of all of these people who supposedly have ideals (laughs) that they are fighting for, who are negotiating a contract for the worst thing you can imagine scripted show, just like (laughs) arguing over their distribution costs. I just, that, the amazing William Holden scene about how no one can resist the allure of television into this scene, I had to take a moment. I had to pause the movie and take a moment because I needed to catch my breath. Patty Chayefsky is a genius. I think we would also be remiss if we don't talk about Ned Beatty. In this oh my discussion. God. He's a, a um, representative of the conglomerate, I think, that owns right. the uh, network now. And Peter Finch gets taken in to see him. Because he starts talking anti-capitalist. It's not just anti-capitalist. It's the conglomerate is being bought by another country. Uh, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, by Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabian money, like unknown company. And he goes on the air to tell everybody, we don't know who's buying us. We can't let some shadow foreign entity buy up our news and then sell us whatever propaganda they want to sell us. So everybody should write to the president, like send a telegram and all of these thousands and thousands of people send telegrams. So the corporation guy brings him in to give him a talking to and Ned Beatty just destroys this scene. (laughs) Like he is chewing the scenery is not enough of a phrase for it. He just, you can't take your eyes off of him. And he's like getting more and more worked up as he's, you know, put like putting this guy in his place and he finally gets to a point where he's like you will atone and then he immediately goes am i getting 30 of mr beale <laughs> yeah it's it's very hell and and brimstone sermon the way he's giving this speech and it's also it's shot very interestingly they're like at a long conference table and peter finch in the dark and ned bay is at the other and they have all those little green lamps that are lining it it's fast yeah like the accountant lamps or whatever yeah. those are but it's, it's incredible. Beautiful. There's definitely a universe, right, where Network sweeps all of the acting categories because this is the one they lost. But Ned Beatty was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I guess they didn't want to give out two awards for like well, two and yeah. a half minutes of screen time, but it deserved them. <laughs> it's really just, it's incredible. Yeah, he's extraordinary. But I just, I can't get over how much I loved this movie. I knew that I would like it, but I, it was not what I expected it to be. Like, I'm sure I had heard it described as, you know, a satire about media or whatever. Mm-hmm. But 
I think I'm with you. If you made this movie today, you wouldn't change a thing about it. It's saying all of the exact right things that it should be saying now and everyone should be watching and taking the lessons from it that we didn't take 40 years ago. But God, what a movie. I have to say, so you mentioned before you're a media person, but you work in television that it was Mm -hmm. also particularly fun watching this with you when they talked about the shares they were getting and the ratings. Oh my God. So many scenes of this. I think I said aloud to you, like, I feel nauseous at one point. (laughs) I don't work in news, thankfully, but I don't know that that really saves me from anything because you just like television. I I was like, am I a bad person? Television is clearly evil. If this movie has any truth to it, and it feels like it has a lot of truth to it. I mean, I would have enjoyed it if we watched it separately, obviously, but that Mm -hmm. that was (laughs) a a fun uh, bonus. But it spoke directly to my soul. Yeah. Again, it's so fascinating to have the only thing I knew from this film be the I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And that's like the beginning of the roller coaster of this film. Well, because I feel like. You hear that and you're like, well, that's not a message that resonates with me, right? If that's the culmination of the movie and the movie is about how society just sucks and we should all be like, fuck society or whatever, like you imagine that to mean. Yeah. I don't think that would have resonated with me the way that this movie resonated with me. Yeah. <laughs> Network, man. Patty Chayefsky. He's a it's genius. It's good. <laughs> and then we can talk about this later or we can talk about it now, that uh, quote from Patty Chayefsky about what was going to win Best Picture. Oh, I mean, yeah, we can talk about it now. Yeah. So since you all know Rocky won Best Picture, it's no surprise. But in advance of the Oscars, Patty Chayefsky and Sidney Lumet. Did we say Sidney Lumet earlier? Mm-hmm. Did we not say who directed this movie? We, I don't think we wrote that down. Oh, shoot. Sidney Lumet directed <laughs> Network. That wasn't our bad. Sorry, Sydney. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sydney Lumet and Patty Chayefsky are having a conversation about what's going to win. And Patty's like, it's obviously Rocky. Like, because, you know, it's the most, like, it's Rocky. Think, yeah. Look at the year you're in. Look at the movies. It's going to be Rocky. And Sydney Lumet was like, no, that's crazy. It's, why would it be Rocky? And Patty's just like, basically, look at the movie you just made. <laughs> <laughs> Right, like, if if anything should tell us that Rocky is going to win, it is Network. <laughs> the existence of Network. He's a genius, that Patty Shayevsky. Truly. I, I think I told you about this. I thought a lot about Fosse Verdon, the miniseries, which is mostly about Bob Fosse, but his best friends are were Neil Simon and Patty Shayevsky, and so you see a lot of them, and... What a cool so crew. What a cool crew. They're, they're so wise. <laughs> Neil Simon, too, had a lot to say about the world. Yeah. Just lighter and funny. Not that not that Network wasn't funny. <laughs> it was very funny. It was also just dark as hell. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It stuck with me. I'll say that. But talking about dark as hell, I feel like we should move on yeah. to our next picture, Taxi Driver. So that's one you had not seen. Correct. Did it meet your expectations? It's just as you haven't seen it, I'm sure you had expectations. It's a hugely famous movie. Well, it might not surprise you to, to hear that I had heard of Taxi Driver. Yes. I was aware <laughs> of its aware existence. That it existed. Yeah. Actually, I'd like you to start off talking okay. about Taxi Driver. I had seen it, but not for years. So there were definitely parts of it that I had completely forgotten about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had not forgotten about Jodie Foster. God, she's good in this movie. But yeah, it's... Like we had been saying, All the President's Men is the, you know, the or journalism movie. Taxi Driver is kind of the prime 
example of I think what we will end up being talking about as like angry white guy movies. <laughs> it, it is about disaffected youth. It's about isolation and mental illness. It is about the aftermath of war a little bit. I mean, the whole Vietnam era is such a dark time in our history that I think there was a lot of this just like sort of unrelentingly dark media produced mm-hmm. about it. So I am a fan. I, I like Martin Scorsese. I like the way that he shoots a film. I, I think I said to you when we were watching it early on, like I just you watch the movie and I feel like in safe hands with the director because it just looks like if you're watching a Spielberg movie or something, it just looks like someone knew what they were doing (laughs) when they made it. The shots are so beautiful. Everything's perfectly composed. The colors of Taxi Driver are like shockingly gorgeous, I think is the thing people would not think about this movie because it's just a dark nighttime movie, but it's got these like gorgeous neons and beautiful tones. Obviously, De Niro's great. <laughs> like it's it's one of the one of the great performances of many De Niro great performances. I think we talked a fair amount about the end cuz the end is a bit of a head scratcher. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I want to talk too much more about it without you saying anything. Tell okay. me your thoughts on Taxi Driver. Yeah, so again, it was interesting cuz it was a lot of new movies for me, right? And like network really surprised me. We'll get to this. Rocky also really surprised me. Yes. <laughs> and I, I found myself a little underwhelmed by Taxi Driver because it just sort of was what I, I thought it was going to be. Sure. And I've, you know, we, we watched all these movies a couple weeks ago. So I've had a lot of time to kind of roll all these movies around in my brain at this point, which might not yeah. always be the case. I agree with everything you said, I should say first. It's beautifully shot. The performances are fantastic. I really love the score. I mentioned to you earlier, I've been listening to the score at work since I watched the movie. (laughs) And, you know, I said at the beginning, if going into this project or at any point in my life, someone had been like, ah, Taxi Driver, Best Picture winner. Not seeing it, I would have been like, Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And even seeing it, right, I'm like, sure. Yeah. But I think what might have taken me out of the movie while we were watching it and what I've struggled with since is... The intention of the filmmakers. Yes. And so like the ending is interesting and we can get into that. But one element of the film that I certainly struggle with is the race element. Mm -hmm. And so Travis is a a racist character, which is fine. I'm not saying you can never have a racist character in a film. (laughs) Because that would be quite a claim as well. (laughs) And I've read some perspectives on the idea of what makes a film racist versus a film about a racist character. Yes, that is an interesting debate. Yeah, the argument I've seen is, well, we're always in Travis's perspective. So the fact that we see these Black people shot in a way that's frightening, the fact that he kills Black people. And I did read that initially Harvey Keitel character was supposed to be Black. And because he only killed Black characters, the producers were like- They changed him to Harvey Keitel. Yeah, they told Paul Schrader, he, he can't only kill Black people. It's not okay. Probably a good call, producers. <laughs> yeah. And so like, that's the argument I've seen, but it's not true. Travis is also a misogynist, mm-hmm. but we get multiple scenes that are not from his perspective with the female characters that humanize them. So you get scenes yes. with Sybil Shepherd that he's not present for. And you do get that one scene with Jodie Foster where she's with Harvey Keitel and you get some sense of what their relationship is like. Yeah, such as it is. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't happen with any of the black characters. They're Correct. just boogeymen in the film. And so mm-hmm. I guess the question I have too is, is the movie substantively different 
if the man sleeping with Martin Scorsese's wife, not a black man, and he doesn't have to call him the N-word? Is the film substantively different if Travis is not as overtly racist? And so what is the purpose of that in this film? And how is the white viewer in 1976 reacting to that? Are they watching a film that's taking place in New York City in 1976 and being like, yes, black people are the problem. And what is the film doing to comment on that? And I don't think it's tackling that in any sort of meaningful way. It's just, it feels like exploitation. And so like, that's the kind of thing that I struggle with. And I think the ending is interesting as part of that conversation as well. I agree Um, with you. It's kind of not taking a position at all when it should be. This racial element to the film is existing in all of these places enough that you're like, that's clearly a part of the movie. We're thinking about it because you're putting it on screen a lot and you don't leave it with any sense of like, so what's your point, Paul Schrader? What are you trying to say? Because it's this guy who's talking about how dirty New York City is and how it needs to be cleaned. And he is constantly seeing all of these black people. And in your head, you're like, he thinks they're the problem, right? Like, right, yeah. this is the implication. And I agree with you. I don't think it comes to any sort of satisfying place. With that in mind, the ending is interesting. I don't, I, I guess we should have said at the beginning of this, there's going to be a lot of spoilers in all of these episodes. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to. Maybe we should go back and put that up. We'll put that at the front. But yeah, so we'll talk about the ending because that's something that it's unexpected, and I think is something that I did not remember. Of the many Mm -hmm. things I forgot about the film, the ending is a thing that I forgot about the film because it's very much building to a place like people are probably vaguely aware of the beats of this. He is getting crazier and crazier. He clearly needs mental health care and is not getting it, and he has like PTSD and whatever. He needs vegetables desperately, (laughs) but he just gets it in his mind that he wants to like do something right and so he gets his hand on all of these weapons and at first he's like a a thing to do would be to kill this random politician guy that I don't actually have any opinions about but he's a random politician guy and if I killed him that would be a thing and then he well it's not just that he's a random politician the woman that he tries to enter into a relationship with works for this politician. I should also yeah. see, I've seen a Paul Schrader quote where he described the film as like, Travis essentially tries to kill the, the like symbolic dads of these two women. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, that makes sense. You're right. I just meant it's a random politician in the sense that he doesn't object to this guy's political views. That's no, because he doesn't hold any political exactly. views. Exactly. It's not any sort of political killing. There is this woman he's trying to date. He gets kind of rejected by her and, you know, in traditional angry misogynist guy mode decides to take an action. And that action will be to kill this politician, but it doesn't work out for him. You can feel all along that the movie is building to some sort of inevitable violent conclusion. And so he also has struck up this friendship with Jodie Foster's character, who is a 12 year old prostitute. We said it was dark. Tarvi Keitel is her like pimp slash boyfriend i that scene that you get with the two of them (laughs) yeah i mean i'm not saying that these humanizing scenes are great and wonderful and happy no but they're 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 dimensionalizing so yeah he decides because he didn't get to kill a bunch of people with the you know in plan a plan b will be because he's friends with this girl and he's been trying to get her out of this situation that she's in he goes over and to kill harvey Keitel and the, the various men that are keeping her in this situation and he's killed it's like this crazy violent 
also beautifully shot that that mm-hmm. shot where it like comes up backwards over the scene and yeah. through the door or whatever good god that's great but anyway he's he's killed all these guys he's gotten shot a couple of times himself it's super bloody and graphic and jodie foster's traumatized forever even more than she already has been traumatized from her life as a 12 year old prostitute <laughs> yeah and he runs out of bullets right he he tries to kill himself in front of her and can't do it. He's out of bullets. The cops show up. He tries to get them to kill him. And it doesn't happen. <laughs> and so you're like, I guess he's going to jail forever. Like, I don't know what is going to happen to this guy. And then the very end of it is he gets hailed as a hero. They decide he is a, a guy who just took matters into his own hands and rid the street of these terrible, you know, pimps and and gangsters or whatever. Yeah. And he there are all these articles you see all these articles talking about like how amazing travis bickle is and society loves him and he gets a letter from the estranged parents of jodie foster's character saying like thank you so much for finding her and we you know owe so much to you and that's the end beat of the film Well, there's a scene after that where he goes back to driving his taxi and he picks up Sybil Shepard's character, who was the woman he was initially interested in. And she essentially is like, man, you really did a great thing. Yeah, like she has also seen the articles. He really gets you around. Yeah, exactly. Everything's coming up, Travis Bickle. (laughs) He couldn't be a greater guy at the end of the thing. And so I think in our minds, we've watched it in our first thought. And I assume this is a lot of people's first thoughts is like, he died, right? Like he died in that scene where he was getting shot a bunch and this is his imagined, you know, happy ending for himself. So we did our research and I guess whatever this counts, I mean, really people can take a film however they want. If we decide Mm -hmm. that's our ending, it could be our ending. But according to Paul Schrader, He's not dead. That's really what happened. That's and Martin Scorsese, dead. too. They both said yeah. that they don't view it as a dream sequence, which, again, I can't parse what's the critique of Travis and what's the critique of society. And maybe the answer yeah. is both, which is fine. Sure. I, just, I just don't think it's as clear as it could be. And then, you know, if you think about films don't exist in a vacuum as much as art maybe should. And so like, again, if you're, you know, an angry white guy watching this film, are you getting whatever nuance they're putting into the film? Yeah. Or are you seeing this well, going and- like, if I take things into my own hands, I'll be a hero too. I will say that is the case for a lot of things. And I don't think that's always the fault of the filmmaker, right? Like there are a lot of angry white guys who watch a lot of movies about angry white guys and take all the wrong lessons from them. I am a big fan of Fight Club, which is one of the most iconic, like, if that's your favorite movie, you're probably not a great person (laughs) type of movies, right? Like, if a guy tells you he loves Fight Club, run away from that guy. But I love the movie. I think it's great social commentary. And I get what the movie's trying to say. I think a lot of people who watch it maybe don't get what the movie's trying to say. And so it's not always the fault of the film. But I'm with you in a place where I don't think Taxi Driver is super clear, about what it's trying to say and so if you're watching it with the wrong intentions or whatever i think you're just vulnerable to certain ideas maybe you shouldn't be watching this movie (laughs) it's gonna be dangerous for you uh because there's not a lesson at the end now i will say i'm not leaving this film thinking like travis got all these happy endings and everything's gonna be great for travis and good for him like i'm leaving it thinking like 
this was not what he needed. And he's definitely still not fucked better. up. Yeah. He's not better. Society has done all the wrong things. And it's only going to get worse for him from here, right? Like, it's the happy ending is fascinating to me because of what it says in contrast to the rest of the movie. But I do think anybody who's a Travis Bickle fan <laughs> watching this movie is going to take some interesting lessons from the end of it. Right. So again, as as I think we both said at the start, it's not a movie I would be mad about if it had won Best Picture. Mm-hmm. It still, again, has all those positive qualities. I just think it's a little messier than some of the other movies yeah. this year. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Scorsese still had a little work to do. He had the eye. Oh, he certainly did. He had the eye. He's always had the eye. <laughs> but all right. And then let's, let's not get into Paul Schrader, who is like a whole can of worms. No, let's not get into Paul Schrader. Let's move on to our best picture of the year, Rocky. Now that we have talked about all the others and our thoughts on them, do we still feel like we're not mad that it won? So, yeah, I mentioned that Rocky really surprised me as a film. Yep. And it did. Because again, in my mind, it's going to follow these classic sports movie beats. Of like, you know the you know, beats of a sports movie. He's an underdog. Yeah. He works really hard and then he almost loses, but then he wins. Right. He has a setback, second act low point. Yeah. And he comes back at the end and he wins. But it really is more of a character study of kind of a weird guy. <laughs> like, yep. It's just a quiet character study of this strange also kind of like a lonely man. He just doesn't have, he just gets his violent impulses out in the ring. Maybe that's the thing to do, guys. I don't know. For Travis Bickle. <laughs> yeah, he should take up boxing. It actually probably would be good for him. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, exercise would be great for him, I think. Yeah. yeah. And then he doesn't win at the end. Well, but what's amazing to me is not that he doesn't win. Because I think I've seen sports movies where he doesn't win. Yeah. He doesn't ever think he can win. He right. is a, this is a character... For the year of 1976, right? Like, we've been beaten down, guys. It is a rough time. We need to set realistic goals for ourselves. (laughs) And in the movie, as he's he's training to take on this heavyweight champion, and he's just like a random boxer from Philadelphia who gets picked because they like that he calls himself the Italian Stallion. He says to his girlfriend, like, There's no way I can win, right? Like, if I can just not get knocked out, I will count this as a success. Right. And so that you set this goal for yourself, and he achieves the goal, right? It's great. (laughs) Everyone knows he's never going to win. He doesn't win. But he doesn't get knocked out. And you're like, good for you, Rocky. Like, achieve your goals. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I was listening to something, and Stallone talked about how you know, at a certain point, for the vast majority of us, we realize we're never going to be the best at anything. So like, sure. just be the best you set your goals, achieve them. And I'm like, that's lovely. That's inspirational, Sly. Thank you for that. So yeah, it's fascinating, because you're right there. It doesn't follow the traditional sports beats. But it also is just weirder than you'd think, right? Like, he's this weird guy. There are these weird moments. He has these turtles that are his pets. (laughs) I'm obsessed with these turtles. And the girl that he likes works at a pet shop, and there's this scene where he's talking to her about, like, oh, there was this time when I got these turtles. And she's like, yeah, I was there when you got the turtles. (laughs) He's like, and I got the the (laughs) container, and I got the rocks. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> is, that, like, is that the scene where he's like, this is Cuff and this is Link and the rest of these are marbles? Yes. It's like, what's happening? You're like, this is, the, this is from the mind of a very strange person. <laughs> that is what we have learned about <laughs> Sylvester Stallone. He has these incredibly long monologues where he's just like talking and talking and talking and you're like sharing thoughts. There's a lot on his mind and it's all weird. Yeah. So I think that's the the like interesting and memorable part about it to me is the part that you don't expect is just like the character of Rocky. Who yeah. saw that coming? What the a boxing weird is guy. kind of whatever. The boxing is boxing. Boxing is all boxing, right? Yeah. Like it can be shot well, it can be shot poorly, but it's all just guys in a ring punching each other and you sort of get what you're going to get. <laughs> one of them is going to get hurt worse than the other one and that's the end, right? It's true. I I will say, so there is no best makeup category at this Oscars. I don't know when that became something they introduced. The makeup on them when they're all it's beat good. up looks great. Unless they really punched the hell out of Sylvester Stallone's face. It looks didn't. real. <laughs> It Seems looks real. Yeah. I mean, the, it's a fascinating story. We've said we're not mad about it winning. I really think this is the movie for 1976. Like, this yeah. movie is speaking to the times. This movie is also hugely culturally relevant, which is something I think we're always going to consider. I can't be mad that Rocky won. It's Rocky, right? That movie will be remembered for all time. As long as we're talking about movies, we'll be talking about Rocky. And it really incorporated the bicentennial. It did in the best possible way. I guess I did tee that up earlier. We have to say. Yeah. So Apollo Creed, who's who he's fighting, Carl Weathers' character, at their fight, because it is the bicentennial year, he shows up to the ring and the way that he enters is he's dressed up as George Washington in an entire display of George Washington crossing the Delaware. <laughs> and then he gets to the ring. He takes off the George Washington and he's Uncle Sam underneath. <laughs> and it's fabulous. It's wonderful. It speaks to the moment. It gave people what they wanted. Everyone was feeling very unsure of yeah. themselves and their place in the world. And Rocky just makes you feel like, maybe I'm not amazing, but I'm good enough, you know? <laughs> Another interesting thing about the movie is his relationship with Adrian, his love interest. It does have a bit of a, in retrospect, right, a problematic moment with yes. their first intimate encounter where- Yeah, they- she's one of these wilting flower, super shy character types. And yeah. he's always been interested in her. And he finally gets her to go on a date with him. And he ends up taking her into his apartment at the end of the date. And what happens? Yeah, he kind of bullies her into his apartment. And then his apartment is terrifying. So (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's messy. It does have the turtles, which are great. But it also has like knives stuck everywhere, stuck into every part of the apartment, which is very scary. And then he kind of like locks the door as she behind her and she tries to leave and he corners her against the wall with both of his arms Mm -hmm. around her. And obviously, he's a big, muscular man. Scary gentleman. But they do end up kissing, and I guess she consents. And then but she's, like, fine with it once yeah, it's happening. It's not. Is the implication. It's not great. <laughs> it's not how I would have done that scene if I were writing the movie. No, I would think not. I, I don't think the movie thinks it's problematic. I think the movie thinks it's romantic. Yes. Which is perhaps more problematic. Yes. But... Well... If the movie thought it was problematic, it wouldn't have done it because Rocky's so great, right? Rocky can't do the wrong thing. It's true. He's a nice boy. So anyway, 
Rocky has a ton of fascinating character quirks. Mm-hmm. I, I think I probably enjoyed the movie just because it was so unexpected. Yeah. And I think we should say one of the weird quirks about it is that it has no conflict. Yeah. Part of what makes any movie, any narrative is conflict, but particularly a sports movie. And when we're, when we're describing the beats of it, it's like there's supposed to be this other team or other guy that you're trying to beat and you guys hate each other. And then you either win or lose, I guess. But he and Apollo have no animosity towards each other. He doesn't even have financial hardship because he has this other job where he works as an enforcer for this criminal guy. But the fact that he works as the enforcer for the criminal guy also isn't a problem. The guy's like very supportive of him when he decides to train for his boxing thing and gives him some cash. And you think like, oh, maybe he'll owe him a favor later. No. I, I read that in the original script, he does throw the fight for money and they they changed that fascinating Uh, that would have made it a very different film it would have but yeah there are small moments of interpersonal conflict but they're resolved really quickly he gets into conflict with his trainer who's played by Burgess Meredith because he was like you didn't believe in me when I was younger and I could have been something and now you come here and you want something for me and and he like has this again whole monologue where he's yelling at him as Burgess Meredith is leaving (laughs) right and Burgess leaves and then Rocky is like Okay, never mind. After. You yeah. should train me after all. Yeah, I got <laughs> like, it on my system. Why did you change your mind? Oh and then God. there's some conflict with his friend, who's the brother of, of Adrian, his girlfriend. And yep. the brother is like, you guys never do anything for me. And Adrian's like, I do everything for you. And then she moves in with Rocky and it's fine. And he it's lets fine. him put some branding on his robe. It's all fine. Everything's fine. So it's a, a feel-good movie. Yeah. You know, you're not going to feel conflicted. You're just going to feel like, I like that Rocky guy. Glad yeah. that he didn't get knocked out by Apollo Creed. And so when we watched it, it was the only Rocky movie I'd seen. Mm-hmm. I've now seen Rocky 3 as well. And it, I'm curious. I don't know if or when I'm going to watch all the other Rocky movies. At what point he just becomes a different character. Because I told you in Rocky 3, he's not this weird guy anymore. He is the, the character the in a Rocky sports that movie. you would expect. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Sports movies had become sports movies by that point. So we had to fit in the mold. They don't even talk about the turtles in Rocky. A travesty. (sighs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's all the movies. I think, again, a banner year. When you have four movies that are acceptable Best Picture nominees, I think you're doing pretty well. I will say, since we have this one that that we both reject, we should talk about, is there anything else that should have been nominated in its place? So there wasn't anything that stood out to us, but we have read a couple of people suggest that maybe Carrie should have been nominated instead. I don't think either of us has seen Carrie, so we can't speak I, to I've that. definitely seen at least some of it, but, you know, probably two decades ago. So I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, fine, <laughs> sub it in for Bound for Glory. What I would say is any other movie instead of Bound for Glory is at the very least a net you know, zero. Like, (laughs) who cares? It could be anything. I don't care what is nominated other than Bound for Glory. There's nothing else out there that I think should have won. So I feel like we find ourselves in a place where it's like, okay, these four are deserving. And then there's a fifth spot for whatever. Yeah. So with the box office, Rocky was number one. So there's not anything else in contention there. If we're talking about Things that were culturally impactful. Yeah, I guess Carrie, certainly more than Bound for Glory. Yeah, the imagery Um, from Carrie is quite iconic. 
Yeah. As you said, these four are on the AFI list. There's, I don't think there's anything else from 1976 that's mm-hmm. on the list. So we're not missing anything there. All in all, four out of five ain't bad. Pretty good, the Oscars, honestly. Yeah. And also just pretty good filmmakers, right? Like, good job, guys, making four really <laughs> solid movies in 1976. All right. So let's say we've, we've said we're not mad about these four, but in your personal opinion, what should have won? What's your best picture? I I think Network should have won. I think of all of of the four that we've talked about as maybes, like I don't I don't want to say Network has become lost to time because it hasn't. There are iconic moments from yeah. it, but in terms of what could maybe benefited from an Oscars boost, Rocky doesn't really need it. Rocky's no. going to be Rocky. Exactly. All the President's Men doesn't need it. Taxi Driver doesn't need it. But yeah. Net, the script in that were so good. It's extraordinary. So good. <laughs> how is it so good? And how is it still so perfect? Why is it only more relevant with every passing year? Why are we living in this hellscape of media? It's wonderful. That's my pick too. I would pick Network. And I agree with you. It has survived as that one scene of I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. But I feel like the lessons of Network have been lost and should not have been. Everyone needs to watch this movie. If there is a recommendation you take away from this episode from me today, watch Network. I mean, watch the other ones too. They're good. But like, watch Network. And think about it. And think about it. So did the Oscars get it wrong? Well, not terribly. I mean, again, give it to Network, but... Just just give it to Network, guys. But also like, fine. It's Rocky. Okay, here's where I want to introduce what will be a recurring segment on this podcast. People are probably aware of the movement before Leonardo DiCaprio won his Oscar of like, get Leo an Oscar. Now that he has one, I think it's time for us as a society to move on to another person. And that person in our minds is the great Jake Gyllenhaal. Please, can we get Jake Gyllenhaal an Oscar? I want to start a campaign. I want people to be writing letters. I don't know who you should write them to, but write them to someone. So every year... We're going to do, should Jake Gyllenhaal have been nominated for an Oscar this year category? Yes, and won. Should he have been nominated and won an Oscar this year? Yes, of course. This year, 1976, we find ourselves four years before his birth, or as I will call it, BJE, before the Jake era. (laughs) So unfortunately, no, there is not a Jake Gyllenhaal performance worth nominating this year. But check back in later with us. Watch this space. It's coming. When he's not negative four years old. Exactly. All right. So it's a bit early in this process to discuss what we've learned. Hopefully we're going to be coming to some sort of conclusions about what makes a best picture in the process of this. That is one of the goals for the podcast. Obviously, in our first year, it's hard to say, but we'll try to look for trends as we go along. We are interested in one particular trend that maybe popped up in this episode. Yes, I think just because of everything else we've seen in our lives, we are aware that this is probably the first of many angry white guy films we will be watching. So that's a pattern to keep track of. How do things compare to Taxi Driver (laughs) in terms of their angry white guyness? So that will be something we keep track of going forward. But other than that, I mean, it's a bit early for lessons other than everyone needs to watch Network. That's my main takeaway. Yeah, what have we learned? We've learned that people need to be watching Network and really taking it to heart. And then I guess as a society, we need to figure out how to take news back out of profit. (laughs) 
Cycle. Is it possible anymore? Who knows? But it's at least worth trying, right? Yeah. Okay. So I think that about does it for 1976. A good year. A great place to start. I feel good about it. What are we going to talk about next time? So next time, our randomly generated year will be the 53rd Academy Awards, or the films of 1980. The nominees that year, in alphabetical order, were Coal Miner's Daughter, The Elephant Man, Ordinary People, Raging Bull, and Tess. Just to set the stage for for next time, Maddie, have you seen any, all, some of these movies? I have seen none of these movies. It's a different experience from this time. So it's a mystery. (laughs) I'm excited. We will see. Maybe they're all bound for glories, but I hope not. Oh, yeah, absolutely not. I'm in the same boat. All of these movies will be new to me, but excited to see five new films. Fantastic. They're great. Fingers crossed. Open mind is what we're going into all of these episodes with. Open mind. Open mind. So we want to hear from you. We have opinions, but I'm sure you do too. If you have comments, questions, concerns, reach out to us at Oscars Wrong Pod. That's Oscars, plural, wrong pod at gmail.com. We are also on Twitter and letterboxed at Oscars Wrong Pod. New episodes of the pod come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts.